0: Hi, everybody. Hello, Michael. Michael Talley. How are you doing? Doing well, Gil. How are you doing? Very happy to have you on the podcast. You are are our second contributor, a patron coming in to review the show with me. And you are an economics and a math major, right?
1: Yeah, I graduated uh, with uh, getting my bachelor's in economics and math last May. And right now I'm just working as a Mm. math tutor. So...
0: So, economics, which this is a great segue to what you want to talk about. You want to talk about one of the things that I think are the most compelling in the story and make it most grounded in reality and in history, and this is the Iron Bank. Why are you so interested in the Iron Bank?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because, um, you know, in Game of Thrones, you actually have the finances of all these different countries and houses actually playing a role. We're in a lot of fantasy stories or science fiction stories, the economics is just sort of thrown to the wayside. Like, I love Star Wars, but none of the economics in that makes any sense. Like, why would you have all of these spaceships blowing stuff up and it's not clear how the Empire makes money or how it does really anything? Nobody cares. So, and it's just sort of like, well, whatever. And so that's just sort of ignored. But in Game of Thrones, it really matters. If your house doesn't have money and doesn't have a way to pay for food or an army or whatever... So yeah, like you said, it's, it really helps sort of ground it to reality and it makes you have to think about the story in a way that's a little deeper than just, well, we got to go, you know.
0: Yeah, let's get to the throne. Right. There's more to it than that.
1: The Iron Bank's an interesting one because it's it's sort of, it's not totally clear if it's a totally private bank or it's somewhat of a Federal Reserve Bank, but it's sort of based on this time in history where you're starting to finally get like large financial institutions because for a long time in history – People didn't really understand loans or interests, and for like for like Aristotle, when talking about interest and charging rates to lend money, he said, "Well, that was immoral because you were using money to make money,
0: <laughs>
1: that and you weren't actually producing anything." And for a lot of people, it's a, it's a hard concept to understand why you would pay more for money so you get it now as opposed to getting it later. Like, yeah. there's even a great scene with uh, Tyrion and Bronn where Bronn just says why don't I just take the money and run? And then he's like saying, well, then you can do this. St-. And then Tyrion's like, well, you can, then someone else is going to find a way to do it. And he's like, yeah, I'd just get away though. And then Tyrion goes, well, that's why I don't lend you money. <laughs> so,
0: And now he's the master of oh, coin. Then he's the master oh, of coin. I was yeah. just
1: like, I feel like he's yeah. going to be really bad at that job at the end. But um,
0: Without using money to make
1: money. Yeah.
0: A lot of uh, current Western culture would uh, come crashing down on all of us. It's, it's not a coincidence that the Iron Bank is on the other side of the Narrow Sea, where there's more of an urban culture and more of an upward mobility compared and contrasting to the more old, old world of Westeros, which is uh, the feudal world. Is, the economics are not uh, as uh, modern as they are, and as complex and as intricate as they are in Braavos.
1: Yeah, exactly, and I think there's this feudal system in Westeros where everything is owned by some lords and land and the peasants, and there's no real private ownership of property, and wealth is an entirely zero-sum game, where it's really, right. if someone has wealth, then the only way they can get more is by taking it from someone else. And and that's something that I think is very hardwired into our brains, not just um, from a cultural perspective, but I think maybe also from a just a deep evolutionary perspective is that we think, okay, here's my tribe and we can either take stuff from other tribes or they can take it from us. And for most of human history, that was pretty much how society functioned. There was very little economic growth at all until about 500 years or so, give or take. And then you see this explosion of wealth with the industrial revolution and printing press. And I think... You can kind of see it. Bravos is a really good example of like the very beginning of, of that, where you're starting to get entrepreneurs, and the wealth isn't entirely being controlled by one group of people, but it can move around. You can invest in different people to do other things, and there's some division of labor being ex- exchanged. And so that's why you see like Bravos, other than the death cult that seems to be able to kill people with impunity, <laughs> it seems like a much better place to re- to live than Demetrio. Um, oh, the West definitely a much better place. But yeah.
0: It's how it's interesting. So like today, uh, there, we can criticize our modern world, and the modern economy, that uh, money breeds more money, and it's more similar to the feudal system. But in this world, it's uh, a lot more meritocratic. If you you don't have to be born to the to the right family in order to get a loan and to start your own business. So it's kind of an interesting twist, like it started out as as, as something that uh, shatters the current power structures and has evolved throughout the centuries into something that keeps the power structures as they are, like the big banks.
1: I, I kind of agree, but I also think that we, we sometimes underlook how big changes can happen in our economy. Like you you still do have certain, you know, like the big banks get bailed out by the government when they fail in a way that doesn't happen with a smaller business and stuff and that they have more power. But you also do see enormous shifts in power, like with particularly in the last like 20 20 or 30 years or so, you look at, you know, a lot of tech companies like Microsoft and Apple. These were small companies that were just started in garages and somewhere on the West Coast. And then they sort of ended up, dramatically changing this political structure and so well you certainly want don't want to have a society where wealth is staying in the same place you know in a lot of ways i think we do actually have a surprising amount of economic upheaval in terms of changing the power structures that we don't always sort of realize that 20 years ago there wasn't facebook there wasn't twitter or all these other giants of industry that we just sort of think as these like Staples of power, so you know. I think there's there is a lot more mobility sometimes than we realize, and you know, and there's also companies that you know go under too. So you have like Blockbuster Video. So the industries do change a lot still, but it's um we now think of things much differently. Like in a Westeros sort of system, people think we want to keep things the same so that we have this group of people has money, this group of people doesn't, and just in general, there was this sort of idea of order being something good that we want, like that you, you don't want sudden new changes and things because that was more stable. Right. But now we sort of embrace some of the craziness of a free market where companies can do well and bad companies can fall under. And now obviously there's exceptions like the banks you mentioned where they yeah. did bad and then they still got bailed out anyways. But we But we certainly have a huge change in mindset that yeah, business can fail. That's fine.
0: The concept of loans and interest really, really boomed with the new world. So you were financing like a boat, an expedition, and then if it struck gold, literally or not literally, then you would be rich when they would come back. But you were taking a risk and basically it boomed over the slave trade. And here, Bravos is like an anti-slavery city. So that's an interesting uh, contradiction here.
1: That was a big aspect of the starting of loans and interest in capitalism. And I mean capitalism in a much... So this is like including the Scandinavian countries where yes. sometimes people call us... But anyways, so... But yeah, I think there was, that was one of the new things about having the new world was this sort of idea that there could be more wealth and this idea of wealth generation. But, and so some of it was through the slave trade, but there was other sort of smaller enterprises. And really, and that's where the idea of credit comes in, where, where what made you a good investment wasn't just having the right name, but knowing, could you pay them back? It's like why I think in a lot of ways, and this is sort of a controversial opinion, but I think the real reason the Lannisters are staying wealthy is not because of the gold mines in Casterly Rock, but because of the phrase, a Lannister always pays his debts,
0: Okay,
1: I mean, I think the you know the, the minds are part of it, but I think when you have a when you, everyone thinks of you as someone who is always going to pay their debts, yes, you will get loans because people will go, okay, right. those are people that right. are smart and know how to manage their money. That's in
0: their logo, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's like their moniker, right?
1: right. Exactly, and that, and that's and that was if you weren't very good with managing your money and your investments, then you stopped getting money and investments because people knew, okay, you're not reliable. Where you don't have Someone's saying, okay, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to be wealthy, but it just happened to sort of be, well, if these people were able to lead profitable expeditions, then they were going to get the money. I know in
0: the books, do you remember in the books? You've read the books, right?
1: Uh, no, I actually haven't, so. Okay, so
0: in the books, the last that we see, that we see of Tyrion is before he meets Daenerys. And in order, so he's a slave there of the, not the Golden Company, the the Second Sons, something of that sort outside of the Meereen as the Battle of Meereen is raging. And in order to free himself, he's signing like IOUs to all these uh, fighters, whatever, from the Second Sons in order to free himself. I, I, I hope I'm remembering all the details correctly. And it got me thinking... That maybe he would renege on his debts by the end, and that would go against the moniker of uh, Lannister always pays his debts because uh, he's like signing debts as a Lannister and he's uh, right, a castaway. He killed his father, he's hiding from uh, his sister. So that would be interesting to see if uh, Martin ever finishes uh, the books. And also, interesting that, like, whenever there's a new system coming in, so you have opportunity for new kinds of powers, and once they get established. They don't want anybody to come in uh, after them. So you have the you have the banks. This is a new opportunity for new players to come into the game after the feudal lords and all the high lords and all the blood rights they were controlling the game for a thousand years. And you were mentioning the the big tech companies. So when they came in, they were like the new the new kids on the block. And now, if you're a new kid on the block in your garage, they're just gonna buy you <laughs> buy right. you out. Right. <laughs> They're buying all the competitors, whatever, Instagram, WhatsApp. So, this is like a recurring theme in, uh, in uh, history, in power and economics. Yeah, areas.
1: exactly. And, you know, one of the interesting things about this period of time was the development of guilds and sort of the end of them. And Adam Smith was someone who talked a lot about not really distrusting the guilds because what they did is that they would basically try and find ways to limit new people from coming in and potential competitors. That was part of the idea when you were at You didn't want someone else to be able to come in and yeah. hurt your monopoly because largely most of what economic theory suggests is that if you want to get prices down, you have to increase competition so that way you can't have one person just you know having a monopoly and charging whatever they want. And so one of the ways that, at least in the modern world, you get people charging... Um, you get them maintaining their monopolies by actually regulating themselves, which is a very weird concept because normally we think regulations. Oh, business hates the Businesses hate those, but a lot of times the big mis- businesses love them because they generally regulate themselves to act as they already do. So, like for example, um, Mark Zuckerberg, we mentioned Facebook a bit earlier, recently was testifying, I think, before Congress and was saying that he felt that Facebook and other social media companies needed to be regulated to prevent against fake news or yeah. hackers or whatever, which, you know, I mean, it seems very altruistic, but, and maybe I'm just being too cynical, but to me I see that and I go, oh, you're just trying to say, put in all these security measures that you as a billion, billion dollar company yeah. can easily implement, and then if someone else is trying mm-hmm. to get a new startup – they can't really do that. There, I think there is some potential to, you know, Facebook, even as a giant, having downfall. Like, apparently, it seems like nobody under 20 actually uses Facebook anymore.
0: I wonder, I wonder, with Instagram and WhatsApp, can they really go under say, does anybody know? It's interesting. But to, to the example that you just gave now, we can tie it to banks. So in Israel, Israel is, you know, it's a very small country, so we don't have a lot of banks. We haven't had a new bank for I don't know how many decades. And this is because of regulation. It's interesting, like the regulation is supposed to regulate the banks and, and protect the consumers, but basically the way it's designed is that they are already here and you have such strict regulations and demands if you want to come in uh, and, and create a new bank in the, into the economy. It's something very hard to do. So you have, it's, it's like the existing players that want to want to protect the, their turf. I, I don't know if there's a place in Bravos. For another bank, do you think the Iron Bank would allow that?
1: Yeah, I, I, can, I would imagine the Iron Bank probably doesn't want a lot of competitors, and so yeah, I don't know if it's a natural monopoly they have in Braavos or if they're like you know they're funding other things to help make sure no one else can start up their own lending companies. And in Westeros, you know, there's there's not even really any sort of free market at all. That it, it doesn't really matter. But it and it's interesting because there's a lot of bit there's been a lot of debate historically about the economics of slavery, which is kind of weird because normally we just think of it okay. as, you know, obviously one of the most horrible things human beings have ever done to each other. Uh, you know, Adam Smith actually was very critical of slavery, and it was one of the things that when someone who was supporting slavery, they said, listen, the reason you don't do this is because you just don't have any sense of sentimentality or any heart, which is which is so bizarre to us that someone would actually think <laughs> in that way. But it does bring up the question, well, if slavery is bad economically, then why would it still exist? That seems to go against the sort of the rational self-interested sort of people that economics assumes. And so Smith sort of gave two reasons for why he thinks that it might happen. And one of which, which I personally don't find that compelling, is that people just like to dominate others, even though it would be more profitable to have serfs. And actually, before that, I should explain why Smith thought that, as he said, when you have slaves working for whatever, they have no incentive to actually make your product better. And they have no incentive to work harder. Just They need to do it just as much as so that they're not getting punished in any way. And so they would be much better off to rent it out to some farmer or some tenant, and they would actually make full use of the land. And it would be better, obviously, for the slaves. But he also believed it would be better for the slave owners. I'm, I'm a little more skeptical about that. But he said the other reason why they don't do this is because now that they've invested money in slaves, the slaves then become an asset. Again, from our standards, is a really weird and awful way to think about other human beings. But at that time, he said, well, the reason they don't find some contract to make them free is then they lose this money on this much that they've invested, and so they're just sort of stuck in the system because...
0: Yeah. You, don't want to, yeah, you don't want to be the last guy holding the bag, right? Like, I invested all this money, and then that's it. It's worth nothing.
1: When Smith was writing this, only a handful of countries in the world had abolished slavery. There was like a few little places in Western Europe that had done it, but for the most part, just the norm everywhere. He was thinking, why don't they just basically have a slave do some sort of indentured servitude thing where they would sort of work themselves to freedom? And then he thinks, well, the reason why is because when you don't have strong governments to enforce the contracts both people would want to renege on the deal because the slave masters would say, oh, well, we'll just keep you after we say we were going to free you. And the slaves would obviously, and justifiably so, the slaves would just say, screw you, I want to run away, you were owning me as property. He suggested that in a society where you don't have strong contract laws, it makes it harder to be able to work out a deal that works best for both parties. When you go back to the show, you actually have a very concrete example of how slaver, of Slaver's Bay, with Tyrion making the offer, saying, listen, we're going to pay off the debt, you stop running the Sons of the Harpy, and you'll be able to still make just as much money, but we'll just make this a slow and easy transition. But then in the show, they just say, no, we're just going to invade anyways. And so the show goes back to the first <laughs> idea, which is, well, they yeah. just like to dominate people, which I, I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical of that, that for thousands of generations, no one would say oh, I want to make more money instead of being an asshole, basically.
0: I think I disagree. There was another instance with slavery and contracts in the show. Do you remember that old guy coming into Daenerys? And he said, I want to go back to the service of this family. And uh, she had to agree to to change the laws. This is also something that you hadn't thought of. Like He knows nothing. And his whole sense of self was teaching those children in that family. And he's too old to, to learn something new and to get new skills and to to go, you know, he's a freelance now, <laughs> he's, you know, he's a math teacher, he's a math teacher, now he's going to, he has to, to, to get clients, that's not easy.
1: Right, yeah, and that's, that's a great point, I, I didn't think of that, and yeah, so I think there is this cultural dependency, and sometimes that's the kind of thing that I, personally, I yeah. think gets a little overlooked by economics, is that having a different culture or attitude can be really important to actually having... A thriving economy. And it's something that I think sometimes econom- economists are too quick to just sort of wish away as sort of saying, well, it'll all just sort of end up being the same. But I do think that when you have someone who doesn't know anything else, actually getting out of it is isn't actually as feasible for them either. Like in economics, there's a term elasticity, which refers to how flexible a consumer or a producer is to be able to change. And in, in these cases, I think what you have is with this really awful institution you you form people that have just no elasticity and no ability to uh to switch um professions. The dream economists world it's where people are happy to go and start new lives easily, but that's not always the case for them and I think you you know that was a that's a great example that you point out of this guy who really doesn't have a whole lot of other options in life besides the one he did, he was already doing so
0: so so to the first point that people like to dominate each other. So there was this saying here, I, I want to take it to like local politics here in Israel. So we have uh, this conflict, right, uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And sometimes it seems, and I think this is true in many ways to both sides, whatever, Israelis and Palestinians, uh, there is this unconscious, irrational, illogical uh, thing that people prefer, that, okay, we are now in a bad situation, but they're in a, uh, in a worse situation than... Let's just work together and then you'll see the other side also happy. It's kind of a irrational, logical thing that... So I'm going to make a, a bit of a generalization here so you can take everything with a grain of salt. But So you know this thing like people coming in, taking our jobs, right? This uh, So uh, you have uh, Arab populations coming to, to Israeli Jewish cities, working in, in, in restaurants. That's like 10, 15 years ago, taking our jobs. And then ten years ago, you had African migrants coming in, and then you heard the same Arabs uh, that work in kitchens complaining about the Africans coming in and taking their jobs. So it's just like also this thing that people are used to. Maybe they like seeing someone below them, just so they don't feel that they're at the bottom of the social order. And this could be true to any population. It is right, not necessarily just the.
1: It's certainly the case in the U.S. where I live. I mean, there was, for a long time, I know a lot of my dad's side of the family was Irish immigrants, and when they first got here, they were, you know, it was like, oh, God, there's all these Irish people coming in to take our job. Now it's, you know, you get dumbass Trump going, all these Mexicans are coming in and taking our jobs, and, you know, it's, it's the same people who originally were, and they're saying, well... But we were different when we came here. We were somehow more... Yeah, like we were somehow more... Yeah Pale. <laughs> I think there is that, you know, psychological thing that people do sometimes like feeling like they're better than others. I think part of that does come from that zero-sum thinking that we're talking about, that if, if someone else is doing worse than me, then I must be doing better. We do tend to compare ourselves to other people around us. Like, even though today you know the median the median person really anywhere in the world is just significantly wealthier than the median person 50 years ago i mean way wealthier but we don't see ourselves that way because we go well i'm not as rich as somebody else
0: and this is something very human like we have been so like our dna you know we have been uh, conditioned to live in in small groups where we cooperate And for thousands and thousands of years, you wouldn't have just, like, one guy in the 30 or 50 people group who has everything. Then you have others who are poor people. No, we're working together. You take care of the children, I go and pick stuff up, he cleans something, she builds a house, whatever, we work together. The communities were meant to curb those instincts to just hoard everything because if you were that kind of person you wouldn't be able to survive i I think we can't help it. it's just like super annoying if you have something and somebody has so much more it doesn't matter if you have more than you had yesterday it's just like no, it's like from a basic human level, you are just like really, really annoyed. So, so in the feudal world, if you go, if we, if we go back to the story, so you have to have a religious or a historical uh, or a, whatever genetic explanation that says why there are high lords and lowborn, and why the the king was chosen by by the gods. But if you don't have those, then it's just like pitchforks and uh, fire, burn them all.
1: Right. You need. You need a story and apparently bran has the best one i guess <laughs> the best
0: story, <laughs> the best story. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah per- yeah i guess really what you need is to just go to a tree and then be a three-eyed raven which no one else actually knows about right and that's the kind of story that justifies having a lot more wealth than other people apparently right. and it's um and it's interesting because you know you mentioned communities and um for a while i think i think that was something that for that for the most part if you were living in even at least, you know, I'm talking more about American history, just because that's what I know better. But for a long time in America, even if you had a lot more wealth than someone else, you lived a very similar lifestyle. And that was something that was very unique to America for a small sort of portion of time. And so it was that your small community, which is sort of what we have that DNA wired in, is that that was what you thought about was your, your small community. But now as those communities have kind of gotten weaker we sort of we don't see ourselves as part of that and so it's not just enough to be about the same as everyone else i worry about someone else who's way wealthier than i am and so it's in game of thrones sort of where you can go oh well the reason i can't do this is because of my last name and i'm a bastard right. so i don't have the same sense of you know i don't get entitled to everything and so that's why i can't and so there's, there's sort of there's almost a reason for something even if they're bad reasons right. like you weren't a legitimate family heir. It's like, well, you know, I don't know why that means you're somehow going to be worse than anyone else. And so, so yeah, so sometimes you have these reasons, even if they're not very good reasons, sometimes you just need something to say, well, you know, this is what we're used to and this yeah. is the way things are. And yeah. we're, we're naturally sometimes a little worried about change, Yeah, even when it would be better for us. Yeah.
0: I think the stories always look very, very bad in retrospect. But in real time, they make sense. Like, why? what's the sense behind uh, someone getting a zillion, gazillion dollars from their parents when their parents die? What have they done to deserve to get a gazillion, z- z- zillion dollars? They can get enough money, you know, I'm not, not saying throw, like take away all their money or whatever. But why does it make sense for the son of Mark Zuckerberg to get the entire empire? What's the benefit for society? Why is that just in any way? That's basically, like, uh, being under the
1: heir to the throne. Right. I don't think anyone is ever happy that that happens. Like, I think people sometimes begrudgingly accept it and go, well, yeah, I guess so, that they get to keep that money. And, like, you know, the the Walton family has the the heirs of Sam Walton, who founded Walmart— there's five of them, and each of them individually yeah. are on in, like the top 20 richest people in the world or something. And it's
0: and they're the heirs, right? They didn't f- found uh, Walmart themselves, right?
1: Right. No, they did. No, they did not. They they have just you know inherited it. And sometimes you get people who inherit a lot of money and believe they've caught they've created it, like our president right now in the United States, was <laughs> someone who was born. <laughs> the phrase yeah. we use, and this is a baseball analogy, but we say yeah. he was someone who was born on third base and is convinced he hit a triple.
0: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great metaphor. Yeah,
1: yeah. There, there's this tendency among people in power to just hire these delusional, sort of, or to get to become delusional because they hire these yes men around them. Yeah.
0: So this is like Cersei. Also, right. She feels slighted because she's a woman and she didn't get all the privileges that uh, her brother got. Okay, but still, why are you more deserving than literally anybody else? Anybody else? Right.
1: And I think it's kind of part of why John wanted to, at least I, the way I interpret it, it's why John wanted to join the Night's Watch is he thought, you know, he grows up his whole life and due to this very bizarre custom, he is treated as much worse than pretty much everyone else in his family. And so the Night's Watch to him is this thing that is this like really nice egalitarian meritocracy. And so the idea of somewhere where titles don't matter and it's all about what you can actually do. That must have just been like to him was like, "Oh my god, that is perfect. That's exactly the kind of world I want to live in." And it, it, it sort of explains why he doesn't actually want the throne, as he said a few thousand times this past season. <laughs> um,
0: did he? Did, did he say it? I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I, th- I think so. You have to turn on your subtitles because uh, if you don't do that, you might miss uh, it. So, um, in the, you know, the, with these different sort of structures that we have, power the culture to them really does matter in terms of why are you, in terms of how, whether or not people deserve it or not, and so, and deserve is a very weird word, because we could say, well, why does someone deserve it? Do they deserve it because they're a good person? Do they deserve it, this power, because they will yield it effectively? And I think that's what's what's interesting about, you know, Game of Thrones compared to most other TV shows, is it's not assumed good people will be good in power. You can be a really good person with pure intentions and still make things worse. In some ways well, that's one of the scarier things about the world in general is that you can be a great person and have, you know, have nothing but good intentions, you can still sort of make things worse. Oh, and yeah.
0: Ned did that. He just like screwed everything up. Right.
1: That's sort of one of the things about at least a laissez-faire kind of idea of economics that human beings themselves we can't organize society from a top-down perspective of saying like We're not able to pick who should have power and who shouldn't. So in some ways, it, it we're better off letting people just sort of go about and live their own lives and don't really interfere and then hope that they will sort it out, which is a very scary idea that's like chaos. That goes against our small group mentality that we want to know what's going on. And so that's part of why it's very hard for people to let go of these um, these 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 economic systems that maybe aren't that aren't as efficient to, for them and they're not as better off monetarily but there's the security you get with an institution you've known for a while and it's hard to break that trap
0: if you go back to the story and there's like the, right this scene between uh, Davos and Stanis in the and the Iron Bank uh, over there and they're like we don't care who you are, what's your last name, what's your blood. We just like make calculations. We have numbers and the story that they tell is a simple story. What are the odds of us getting back our money? Right. So, uh, in, in, in Israel, I'm sure if I think about it a little bit, I can find examples uh, over there in, uh, in the U.S. But in Israel, we have we, we've had these uh, very famous in instances where banks have gotten have gone clearly against their own interest by lending money to reach people who have been very very bad at uh, at paying them back and then the right they call them uh, they called haircuts right they had to take haircuts to their to their money but they have been very reluctant in giving away loans to small businesses where the, even though the risk is smaller and more contained so it's kind of gone full circle maybe it's just like not really about an economic system. But just like about a distribution of power, again, to my earlier point, that when you change things up, I would for sure, if I had to choose where would I go and live in, the, in, the, like in this world, planetos, only bravos. That's my first, second, third, fourth, fifth choice. Because there I have the most chances to, to, to live a decent life. But if you fast forward right. uh, 500, five, 500 years later, it becomes like the same kind of thinking that liberates us to do whatever we want, just like again puts us in our social socioeconomic uh, whatever uh, stratas and this is where you are no why how can we do anything differently? This is the way that it's always been right uh.
1: yeah, a lot of economical thinking was this uh, the sort of the Darwinian idea of what businesses do well and that and that that's sort of the way we should determine things because you can. Because you can have a business do well, but then and you have a chance to move up, but you also should have a chance to, to fall down. And there's a saying where, and I know we have this in the US, I'm sure it's a saying pretty much everywhere in the world, but that we have basically capitalism for big companies gains and then socialism for their losses, yeah. where they can get these big rewards, and we're fine with that, but then when they lose everything, we go, oh, well, we got to help make sure they do yeah. well. And it sort of is, it's it's harder to take even just from from an individual's perspective, it's you know it's scary to see big banks fail, because then we go, we get, we say we get mad about it, but we're also like, ooh, I would not want Wells Fargo and Chase and all those other banks that we're so used to having go under. Like that would be that would be really scary. And so it, it's easy to say, yeah, we want to have this, you know, new structures and people can go and gain all this money. But then when when we see the loss side of it, it becomes much harder to embrace this like you know new changing of the guard. And it's and sort of it's like well, you, when you see uh, like with when Cersei's basically saying there's no reason anyone in the Seven Kingdoms should have even a modicum of sympathy and respect and desire for Cersei, but she can kind of go, well, you got no idea what Daenerys is going to yeah. do. And that's how she convinces like the Tarleys and stuff and other people to join her. She's like, well, you don't know what happens. Imagine when everything you know comes crashing down, it'll be all different. And so we have this just reluctance again against change. So,
0: Which makes sense because for thousands of years there has been very little change and very slow change. And now everything is changing so fast that I find like one of the things that I find most frustrating in whatever conversations that I have with people, it could be about any topic, is this underlying assumption that what was, was, will be again, whatever. What happened in the past will inevitably happen again the same way because this is what happens. No, if it happened then, then, if it happens again, it will be different because this is the second time that it happens, right? People will react differently. And it can be about mm-hmm. whatever conversation about Game of Thrones. People told me, yeah, you know, the prequels will come, everybody will like them just as much as they, as they like Game of Thrones. You're like, why? Something changed between uh, season 7 and the prequels. There was season 8, people got upset. Maybe people will like it just as much, maybe not. So and it can be about economics, about politics, about anything It's just like, it's really, really hard I think that like we have to to really make an effort To not assume that uh, history repeats itself Because it's, it does in the grand scheme of things Of the power structure It's, it's a story of power, right? What, what repeats itself is that people who have power They want to keep power And if they have to change the story and ideology, which they call ideology, they can change the story. So it can be so. So in the year 1500, then capitalism means uh, social mobility. Now it can mean something else. This is mine. Don't take what's mine. And in 500 years, whatever somebody else will have a different story. The thing that will replace it then will also become a problem for society. It's just like uh, I don't know.
1: There's a great phrase where it says history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Boom you know there certainly are similarities to things but there also are changes and it's it's interesting how generally the institutions and power structures that last are the ones that can deal with the new changes in the world and so you know for a long time the catholic church was the biggest institution in europe it was very influential because it was sort of helping consolidate monarchies and powers but then as the world became more about exploring and trying to find new things and the and as science became a big a bigger thing and you're saying well maybe we clearly don't know everything about the world and we need to figure things out i mean the catholic church at that point <laughs> didn't really have many good things yeah. to say and they, and they were not as beneficial to society at large and wasn't weren't able to help people understand that change and i think I'm kind of getting this from a Noah Yuval Harai who wrote the book sapiens ah, um, but he basically good. sort of says it's not clear how any of our current powers or current ideologies or stories about the world we tell ourselves, how any of them relate to artificial intelligence, automation and you know well and potentially genetic editing, and it's not clear what how these because we still at least in American elections. There are very few new ideas being discussed. It's generally saying, why don't we do what we always did or keep things the same? Let's keep the jobs here, not do this, or even sort of, or say, well, why don't we do what other people are already doing in other ways? And so it's, and there are very few, there's very few people saying, well, how are we going to deal with artificial intelligence Replacing potentially white collar jobs because generally innovation is only taking yeah. blue collar jobs. But now, for the first time in history, there may be you know jobs that very you know intellectual that were intellectual people sort of always had very safe. We can use an AI to figure out what temperature we need to set our whatever at to make our best baby formula or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's a, that was a weird example. I don't know why I shows <laughs> that. But um,
0: but also I know like to <laughs> predict uh, economic trends maybe. We can use the AI right. to predict economic trends. So all your financial advisors, you can find another job, please. We don't need you anymore.
1: A good example of this was um, the Castle Heron Hall, where Tywin has this scene where he's talking about it. And he's saying, you know, for a long time he built this castle that could have repelled a million men easily. Yeah. And then suddenly the game changes because Aegon flies in with dragons yeah. and roasts him to, to pieces. And so yeah. it's this, you know, as things change you sort of need your institutions to either change or you need new institutions because there's new things that happen in the future. And as things change, you want institutions that are flexible and can change. But we also want to still have that sense of, okay, well, nothing's changing that much. We still want to have that sense of stability and, okay, well, I can count on this. Right.
0: I think even the people like in the whatever, upcoming uh, American elections, even the people that are pushing for change, I don't know how many of them were like, Day one, no more insurance agencies. Day two, nationalize Facebook. Day three, nationalize the banks. I still, I think it's, it, it, even those, which I would agree with, uh, with with those points, like let's 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 make a, whatever calculated changes. But also, if we go back to the story, it's like okay, so we can say what we want about. The feudal system and its uh, horrors, and compare that to Bravos, which we both agree is a more hospitable place to live for humans. At least something that so the, the weirdest thing can happen in a, a market-based society. Tomorrow, even though nothing changes, you still have all the properties that you have. I have all the properties that, that I have. But everybody in the world can be poor if if there's all kind of crashes. Like nothing tangible actually changes. But everything crashes, we're all poor, no more businesses. In a feudal system, this sort of thing cannot happen. You have to have, like, whatever, a disaster, a natural disaster, a war, a famine, something. This is something that I always found, yeah. like, really, really weird. How can everything change without nothing really actually happening, in, in, like, in the world? I would still have my couch, my house, my table, whatever, my car don't have a car, but you know what I mean?
1: You know, back to this sort of ideas about wealth, like even with Aristotle, who was just sort of saying, well, how can there be wealth with you just making money for money? That just doesn't make sense. <laughs> and I think that that still is something we have here where all of a sudden you can have a giant stock market crash and we can lose, and there's so much wealth in just these non-tangible things. Yeah. You know, we're like in a lot of ways we're like a mod, the guy who's the guardkeeper for Tyrion when he's at the Vale. We're all like, I don't see any gold on you, so where do? You, how could you possibly have it? Like in a lot of ways, that's sort of how we think about things. Still, uh, we're like, you know, we're, we like to go, oh, he's so stupid. But deep down, that's kind of the way, you know, that's our instinct, gut reaction about the world. And we have to sort of, it actually takes effort right. to condition ourselves out of that way of thinking.
0: It's so weird that like a, the corporation can have its own interests that can be counter to the interests of everybody that works in this corporation but still everybody will work to the whatever it's like sacrificing you know uh, animals to this uh, god or something it's just like no i have to do this for the because uh, this is what uh, the corporation needs it's not in my best interest to pollute the river where <laughs> that i drink my water right. from but it works in this excel sheet so yeah yeah
1: Right, and there's, yeah, externalities is something that is a really interesting concept in economics where you have, um, there's some sort of cost that's being applied to society as a whole. Or like, so pollution's the classic example of a negative externality. I was When I was preparing for this, I was thinking, how could I bring in externalities to Game of Thrones? Because I think it's a really interesting economic concept. And I just, I really couldn't think of a negative externality because there's not, like, I mean, I guess actually really the wall would theoretically be something that there is a externality for. like Even if you, know, even if you don't partic- personally work at the wall or do anything involving the wall, you get protection from the White Walkers and the army of the dead. Even if you don't personally contribute to it, it's something that benefits society as a whole. It's not like just the knights watching and yeah. the people who maintain it get the benefits. The realm as a yeah. whole can benefit from it. So that would be an example of a positive externality. And I have maybe a negative one. Okay. So
0: hard home. Could we say that Hard Home was a result of the attack by Stannis that caused the wilding army to disperse. And then some of them went to Hard Home and then the Night King got a million more zombies.
1: Ooh. Um I think so. Let me just Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting one because that's a good example of sort of unintended consequences, yeah. which which is really what which is a large part of externalities. And I guess um Yeah, I guess you could sort of think of it that way as like, yeah, and I guess it it sort of is one of those things where the white, you know, that if you do things that help the white walkers, even though they're not, we don't really think of them as like an economic agent, really. We think of them more as a force of nature. That's sort of how they're mostly presented. But that
0: could be like global warming, so that could be like pollution, whatever, right?
1: Right, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, global warming is the, at least in our world, is the most obvious example of a negative externality because it's something where... Even if, you know, when we drive our cars or or power our homes or whatever, we're using something that's going to affect not just us and the energy company, but affects everyone in the world. So it's sort of the place where the market solutions don't work as well. It's Because you have this cost that is not being bared by the two people acting on their own free will. And so that's where it makes sense that you would have some sort of central authority to come in and regulate and say, okay, you can't pollute this much. This is not this is not good, this hurts, and you have to find that balance of how much energy do you want to produce while also not, you know, screwing up the planet.
0: I think... We have two choices, either destroying the planet or having Stalin. That's basically the two options, right? Because if we have... Uh, right, exactly. There's nothing in between. Nothing
1: there's, in no, between. there's no continuum. No. <laughs> you have to pick one or the other. So
0: it sounds that you are for Stalin, Michael, and I wish you had told me this uh, from the beginning. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of weird now to find it out so so late in the conversation. Sorry. sorry. Just like this assumption that the two sides of the aisle are... Are have and will always be balanced and the middle will always be where it makes sense that's also kind of an assumption right. that is not really based in reality we can go back to history and find all kinds of all kinds of instances in history from ancient history all the way to now where there was like political parties who were detrimental uh, to society and uh, caused a lot of harm and and uh, shouldn't have been assuaged or listened to and should have been you know fought along the means you know legal means and uh, stuff like that it was super fun so michael let's wrap it up it was a lot of fun this conversation did you have a good time
1: yes i did it was a lot of fun thanks for having me
0: yeah my pleasure my pleasure so uh, i'm glad you had a good time michael And it was really interesting going through history And going back to the story And going out of the story completely Thank you everybody for tuning in Uh, Follow our podcast uh, If you haven't, not just listen to this one Click the follow button so you won't miss Any of our contributor conversations About Game of Thrones And we have science in movies History in movies, social justice in movies All kinds of stuff So be sure to click the follow So we'll see you all next time Bye everybody